there's an overlap here. In this series, we're looking at the life of Isaac and the life of Jacob. There's an overlap in this moment between Isaac's life and Jacob's life because we are introduced to Jacob. And it's very important, just like it's important for us to understand Abraham in order to understand Isaac, it's important for us to understand Isaac in order to understand Jacob and vice versa. Because much of who Jacob is, is really uh, caught up in the identity of his father and the identity of his grandfather. Also, we don't have much information about Isaac, unfortunately. We, we know very few things about Isaac, and most of them are not very positive. You, you ever thought about that? You look at the information that we have about Abraham... Tons of information about Abraham. Uh, the whole lot of Genesis is devoted to the life of Abraham. When it comes to the life of Isaac, there's just this small sliver as though he's a kind of speed bump to get us from Abraham to Jacob, if you will. And most of what we see in Isaac's life is an unfortunate repetition of many of the failures of the life of Abraham. In fact, one of the only positive moments in the life of Isaac is a moment that we'll examine here in Genesis chapter 25. Uh, other than th this moment here, uh, most of the moments in Isaac's life uh, are, are not very positive. Look here, beginning at verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the, Ar the Aramean from Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean. By the way, that name Laban is going to occur again. We're, we're going to see Laban not only involved in this process of Isaac finding a wife, but we're also going to see Laban involved in the process of Jacob finding a wife. And Laban is an absolute scoundrel in the process. So there's a little foreshadowing here of what is yet to come for Isaac's son. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Here's what's interesting. We already see a parallel and a distinction between the life of Abraham and the life of Isaac. Both of them are dealing with barrenness in their wives in light of a promise from God. God has made a promise to Abraham. He's going to make Abraham a great nation, the father of many nations, and yet he has no son. His wife is barren. Now we see Isaac, who has the same promise, he is the fruit of the promise and the next step in the promise. So he's got to have some kids, right? Well, not for the first 20 years of his marriage. There's nothing. <laughs> Wait a minute. My father dealt with this. And God, you miraculously intervened. And so here I am. And now you mean to tell me at the next step in the juncture, I can't have kids either? But there's also a distinction in the midst of the parallel. Here's the distinction. The distinction is, Abraham, you're going to have a son. <laughs> what? For real? And his wife, Sarah, she laughs. That's funny to her. 
they don't trust God. In fact, eventually they go off and there's Hagar and, you know, and Ishmael and there's not trust in God. Right here immediately there's a distinction between Abraham and Isaac. Isaac, they're not able to conceive. What is his response? To get on his face before God. Not to try another route, but to get on his face before Almighty God and beg that God would bring forth a child through his wife. Not to find another woman like his father did, but to trust that God would provide the way God said he would provide. Now it's interesting, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but it's hard not to believe that Isaac's experience with Ishmael, the older brother who despised him, may have had a little bit to do with this. Amen? He saw that friction between Hagar and his mother. He did not want to do that to his wife. He saw the friction between Ishmael and him, the seed of promise, who came not from Hagar, but from Sarah. He did not repeat this. No, 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 I'm going to God. We're not going to mess this up like that. God's got to fix this. It's got to happen. Here's the other thing that you need to recognize. Well, let's read here a little further. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. That's just good. The Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, a lot of people will read that and will say, well, well wait a minute, so... I thought God had already said that there was going to be, you know, these multiple nations, and so there had to be an, an heir. So God's really just doing what God was going to do. What the text says that God answered his prayer. So was God not going to do what God promised to do unless he prayed? Or was he, you know what, not your department. God answered his prayer. God answered his prayer. By the way, when we pray in accordance with God's will, God answers our prayer. Amen? God answers our prayer. Do I know all the inner workings of how God answers my prayers when they're in accordance with His will? Nope. Don't know that. Not my department. My department? Pray. That's my department. That's Isaac's department. The children, verse 23, struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, now stop there. Twenty years she couldn't get pregnant. Twenty years. The time Isaac's 40, the time Isaac's 60. Twenty years. Now she gets pregnant, and it's rough. God, thank you for answering prayers and all, but this is not good. I mean, I know I want a child, I really do. But there's something going on in here that's just not right. I'd almost rather not... You, you, you got to explain this to me, please, Lord. I don't know if there's any of you in here who've ever had pregnancy like that before. Amen. Sick all the time. Baby just acting like a, you know, a, an Olympic gymnast. It was not good. And it wasn't just normal, not good. This was so bad that she went and inquired of the Lord. Something is wrong here, God. 
Something is not normal here. Something is beyond unusual here. Please explain to me why I'm having this kind of experience in this pregnancy. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. By the way, I want to pause here. We alluded to this on last week. But when I, we, we need to pause here and address this issue again. Because some would like to make God the author of sin by saying, well, God said to Abraham he was going to be the father of many nations. And so you have Ishmael, who's a separate nation. So actually what Abraham did was really what needed to be done anyway, because otherwise, how are you going to get multiple nations? Here's the answer. One wife, one pregnancy, two nations. No adultery necessary. Amen? There is no excuse for what Abraham did. It was sin, plain and simple. The end doesn't justify the means. You don't go and help God out by sinning in order to bring about the promises that God has made. And it doesn't matter how it turns out in the end. Sin is sin. And we see here that God is more than capable of bringing about multiple nations without the help of adultery. Two nations are in your womb and two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. And then here's a twist. The older, contrary to tradition, shall serve the younger. The oldest son is supposed to be the primary heir and in line for a double portion blessing. He is supposed to be the primary means through which the family name is carried on. God says, I got some news for you. Number one, there's two nations in your womb, not one. That's highly unusual. Jacob, there's going to be 12 sons from two wives and two concubines, and they're still all going to be one nation, Israel. Here, we've got twins, same mother, and God says, two nations. Not only the unusual twist of two nations, but let me throw this monkey wrench in there. It's not going to be the normal order. The younger son, contrary to tradition, the younger son will be the stronger. The older son will be the servant of the younger son. In other words, the promise is not contingent upon birth order or man's tradition. The promise is contingent upon predestination and election. Verse 24. When our days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Now his descendants are called Edom, which refers to redness. This name Esau refers to the hairiness. So you got this baby who comes out and he's red and hairy. Afterward, his brother 
came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. His hand was clutching to his older brother's akave. It's the word in the Hebrew, akave. His hand came out clutching to his brother's akave, to his brother's heel. So his name was called Yaakov, which is a derivation of akave, which means heel grabber or deceiver. Or conniver, swindler. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebecca loved Jacob. Read between the lines. This family has problems. Amen? Not only is there contention between the brothers, but between mom and dad as well. And here's what we know. We know that this contention between the brothers is going to grow we know that this contention between the brothers will define the two of them, will define their relationship, and it will also, at times, define the relationship between the two nations that they become. We'll hear about Edom again throughout the Bible. We also know that this conflict is going to come to a head between the mother and the father, and there's going to be conflict as to whether or not they obey what God has spoken clearly about these two sons. All of this foreshadowed right here in these few verses about the birth of Jacob and Esau. Here's what else is foreshadowed. One commentator has written, There's not much about Isaac's life that we know. And perhaps that's because, beyond the fact that he was a man of faith and prayer when it came to his wife conceiving, ultimately, his life degenerated into a thirst and hunger for wild game and being a horrible parent whose favoritism and inequity caused ripples for generations to come. And yet, predestination and election tagged him. And not the son of Hagar, not the sons of Keturah. And yet, when it comes to Jacob, when he starts out, of course his name has been redeemed, but when he starts out, even his name even his name is a reference to the kind of character that we're going to see in the life of this young man who grows up into an older man who is a schemer and a conniver, so much so that when he gets schemed and connived by Laban, the response when you know his character is, good for you. It's what you get. And yet, and yet, this was God's plan. 
Well, we'll have much to say about this issue of Isaac and Jacob and Esau and the relationship between Jacob and Esau. However, before we go beyond this paragraph here, there's a doctrinal issue that we must deal with. You guys know I don't bring out the, the computer and the slides all that often, but there's some work that we need to do here in order to lay some theological groundwork. Otherwise, there will be confusion and questions and misunderstanding and a bunch of other things as it relates to this issue of predestination and election. Because this is the seminal portrait, the seminal portrayal of the doctrine of predestination in the scriptures. And I'm not suggesting that. The New Testament suggests that. Romans chapter 9 is an exposition of this passage of Scripture. Romans chapter 9, the seminal section in the New Testament on the doctrine of predestination and election, is an exposition, a doctrinal theological exposition of the Jacob and Esau birth narrative. So, before we go beyond and continue to look at the life of Isaac, and go beyond and continue to look even more closely at the life of Jacob, rounding out our understanding of the patriarchs, there is an issue that has been bubbling beneath the surface all along that now comes to fruition. It was a little bit easier to see as it related to Isaac and Ishmael. I mean, of course, you know, God made a promise to Abraham and Sarah. Hagar is not part of that promise. Hagar is outside. We got the, of course. But again, the doctrine of predestination and election is under the surface even there. Now, it is full-blown and it is in our faces and it must be dealt with. So what we'll do is we'll, we'll explain the doctrine. We'll see the source of the doctrine. We'll defend the doctrine and we'll apply the doctrine of predestination. This is a discussion that most churches would rather not have. Amen? I mean, it, it really is. It's a discussion that most Christians would rather not have. In fact, what we'd much rather do is something like this. Well, you know, we really can't understand predestination and election, so it's really of no benefit to sort of delve into those things at all. Folks, if you don't delve into predestination and election, you don't delve into the gospel. You must delve into this issue. And we will do just that. The explanation of the doctrine. That's where we'll start. Let me explain this doctrine of predestination and election. And we'll explain it from our confession of faith. The London Baptist Confession. We, we've read this issue of the doctrine of predestination and election. But I want to go through this and take a few moments to explain this for you. Okay? And, and, and let me say this already as we start. Because here's the position that some people will take. Well, you know, of course, you know, you go to the confession of faith. That's man's words. That's not the scriptures. Absolutely. We're going to get to the scriptural explanation. But we need to have these synthesized for us. And that's the only reason that we have a confession of faith in the first place. This is the position to which we hold as a church. Okay? 
Number one, this is chapter three in the London Baptist Confession. God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever come to pass. All things whatsoever come to pass. Yet, so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things, and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decrees. In other words, there is no contradiction whatsoever between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Man is responsible. Man is accountable. Make no mistake about that. This is one of the greatest problems that people have when it comes to the doctrine of predestination. And that is, we believe that somehow it removes accountability and it removes you know, some, 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 some issue of man being responsible for the sin that he commits. Nothing could be further from the truth. That is not the doctrine of predestination. We'll make this clearer as we go along, but for now, we're just stating the doctrine. Number two, although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. In other words, God did not choose Jacob over Esau because he looked down the corridor of time and saw that Esau would be the one to respond favorably. That's the prescient view of election. Yeah, yeah, God chose people to be saved, but only because he foresaw that they would choose him. That's not sovereignty. That's God being a time traveler. That's God having a special trick that he can do. That's God having no power whatsoever, no control whatsoever. He is absolutely helpless and just happened to saw something and then made a decision in order to lie to us and make us think that he was sovereign. That's not predestination. There is no predestination when you see something and then make a decision based upon knowing the outcome. That's like believing that a newscaster has some special powers because the newscaster is showing you a video clip that they saw before you saw so they know exactly what's happening and they say, now watch this, in a, in a second you're going to see this on the right side of your screen. Wow, they're sovereign. No, they just saw it before you did. And by the way, that's the prescient view of election. God's not sovereign. He just saw it before you did. And then after he saw it, he came back and he said, here is what I have declared is going to happen because I'm God. No. You just saw the video clip before everybody else. You have no power. You have no authority. That is not the doctrine of predestination. Three. By the decree of God, 
for the manifestation of his glory. Some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. Others being left to act in their sin. That phrase is important. Well, God just chose some people to go to hell. Being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation to the praise of his glorious justice. Every human being who has lived or will live deserves to die and go to hell. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Predestination is not about God saying, well, I'm going to make you good and I'm going to make you bad so that I can make you go to heaven and you go to hell. No, here it is. All of us fell in Adam. And from Adam on, every man is born in sin and shaped in iniquity and deserves death, hell, and the grave. Here's the glorious grace of God in predestination. God says, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to allow them all to go. I'm going to save some. Why? Just to show off my grace. That's why. That's why. What about the others? They will get what their sin deserves and what they desire. It's not God's injustice that sends men to hell. It's man's sin that sends him to hell. And the fact that God in His grace and mercy has elected to save some shows His grace and mercy, not His guilt for punishing sin. God makes no man sin. Every man sins because he wants to sin. He's bent towards sin. Oh. Well, what, well, what about, we'll get to those questions. Number four. These angels and men, thus predestinated and foreordained, are particularly and unchangeably designated. And their number so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. How many people are going to heaven? The exact number that God chose before the foundation of the world, not one more, not one less. Number five. Those of mankind that are predestinated to life, God before the foundation of the world was laid according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will. His purpose, his will. This is why, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love. That's the other problem with the prescient view. There's no grace in the prescient view. There's no love in the prescient view. I love you and I saved you. No, you didn't. You just saw that I was going to be smarter than other people or more pious than other people, and choose you. And because you saw that I was going to choose you, then you decided to love me, then you decided to save me. That's not your glory, that's my glory. Hath chosen in Christ 
unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love without any other thing in the creature as a condition or cause moving him thereunto. Nothing in the creature made God choose him. Why? There is none who does good. There is none righteous. There is none who seeks after God. By the way, that destroys this whole concept of the prescient view of election. There's none who seek after God. Really? Well then, if there's none who seek after God, how did God look down the corridor of history and see some who would seek Him and then predestinate them based on the fact that He knew that they would seek Him if none seek God? Answer? He couldn't. He couldn't. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead men seek nothing. Not almost dead, not close to dead, not kind of dead. Dead. Dead in trespasses, dead in sin. And it is the power of God that makes us alive together with Christ to the praise of His glory and not our own. Six. As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so he hath by the eternal and most free purpose of his will foreordained all the means thereunto. Don't miss this one. Because this answers the question that people ask. People say, well, if that's the case, if God has already elected people, why should we preach the gospel? First of all, because he told us to is a good enough answer for me. Amen? But listen to this. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by His Spirit, working in due season. Where does that come from? The preaching of the gospel. God has decreed that it's the gospel that He will use to call forth His elect. Are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by His power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ or effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, or saved, but the elect only. This doctrine, far from teaching that we shouldn't share the gospel, gives us the only reason to ever expect any success in doing so. Amen? It is the means that God has decreed. It's the process that God uses to call His elect unto Himself. So yes, repentance and faith, we call for it. Well, why would you call people to repentance and faith if it's only God that would allow them? Because that's the way they're saved. Repent, believe, cry out to God. Yeah, well, if He hasn't chosen me, then I can't. That's not your business. Repent. Believe. Stop trying to do other people's business in their department and just worry about yours. Well, I want to cry out and ask God to save me, but what if He hasn't chosen me? Really? Really? First of all, how will you ever know that? Unless you repent and believe. Secondly, why would a non-elect person even care? That's evidence of your election. Not reason to question it. 
And there are people who weep and wail. I, I just, I, I want so desperately to be saved that I love Jesus and I want him to save me. And I'm like, okay, it seems like God has brought regeneration into your soul. Yeah, but I just, what if he just doesn't, I mean, what if he, what if he, what if he, what if he what? He's calling you to himself. He's giving you a yearning for him. So wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. This is what you believe about God? You believe God goes around going, watch this. I'm going to make this one want me and I'm not going to save him. That's what you say when you act like that. That's what you're accusing God of when you act like that. You're asking a question that you're not capable of answering and that you've got no business asking in the first place and you're accusing God of being like a kid who uses a magnifying glass to burn ants. Watch this. Stop already. Repent. Believe. Cry out to God. Seven. This doctrine, or the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination, is to be handled with special prudence and care. That men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation be assured of their eternal election. There it is. Be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. An arrogant Calvinist ought to be a contradiction in terms. The attitude is not, well, I'm one of the elect. No. The attitude is, I'm one of the elect. God be praised. There is nothing in me. There is nothing about me. That God should have been interested in saving but to the praise of his glory, according to the counsel of his own will, not because of anything that he saw in me, but in spite of everything that he saw in me, God called me out of darkness into his marvelous light. I'm humbled. I'm overwhelmed. That ought to be the response to the doctrine of predestination. Now the source of the doctrine. We've seen the source of the doctrine here in the texts that we've already examined. But let's look here at some other passages of Scripture. First, in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. You, you want to see intellectual gymnastics? Watch an Arminian teach through Romans chapter 9. There's so much that has to be explained away in Romans chapter 9. If, if you don't believe in the doctrine of predestination and election, and we'll just see it. We'll just, we'll, let's just look here, okay? But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Okay, he's going right back to Genesis. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, 
I will return and you shall have a son, or Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and look at this, it explodes the prescient view. And had done nothing, either good or bad, in order... Why did this happen before anything was done? In order to show that God was really good at seeing the future? No, that's not what the Bible teaches. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. Where do you get the prescient view from in that? Well, no, He just saw who would choose Him. You've got to rip this out of the Bible in order to believe that. The New Testament goes out of its way to destroy that myth. It had absolutely nothing to do with who Jacob was or who Esau was. They were both dirty, rotten scoundrels. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What had they done? Nothing. Completely a matter of election and predestination. In fact, Jacob doesn't get his act together until God meets him and breaks his hip. God takes him by force. So much for all those folks who, you know, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He would never force himself on anyone. Help you. He broke Isaac's hip. That's forcing yourself on someone. Amen? Holy Spirit's a gentleman. He would never force himself on anyone. Really? How about that John the Baptist fella in the womb? Yeah, he was begging for the Spirit in there. How about Mary? Overshadowed by the Most High. The Holy Spirit is the second, third person of the Trinity. Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He's God. He's not running for God. He's God. He needs permission for nothing. He's God. Again, in Romans 9. I love the way Paul handles this in Romans 9 because he answers the questions that people always ask about predestination. In other words, our culture is not the first in which people ask these very same questions. And he answers them. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Isn't that the question people ask? Election and predestination? Somehow God, he's unjust. By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Again, does not depend on human will. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. He's God, folks. How about this one? You will say to me then, why does God find fault? 
Aren't men just sinning because God made them sinful? Didn't he just decree all of that? And who can resist his will? How's God going to find fault? Nobody can resist his will. But who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not believed, who has, who, who was not believed, I will call, not beloved, excuse me, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And again, he continues. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. If it wasn't for what God did in his plan of election and predestination, all of us would have been like Sodom. All of us would have been like Gomorrah. There is not one person who deserves the mercy of God. And the only way anyone gets saved is by the grace and mercy of God. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14, another amazing section of scripture as it relates to the doctrine of election look here blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who has blessed us in christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through jesus christ according to his ability to see who would choose him No, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's the God we serve. The God who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him. There are those means again. Why preach the gospel? Because that's what God uses. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. That's very important. If we don't believe in a God who's powerful enough to predestine people, 
then we probably won't believe in a God who's powerful enough to keep those whom he saves. Here's some other verses. Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. That, 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 that goes for those who, you know, God's somehow out there and he's just hoping, he's just pining. He just really, you know, oh, he just really needs you. He desperately to just please, I hope you will please. Would you please just believe in me? Please, please, please. No, that is not my God. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever pleases him. John 5, 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. John 6.65 And He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted Him by the Father. Jesus said, No one can come to Him. Not no one will. No one can. No one is able to come to Jesus apart from the Father Working in them, bringing them. Predestination and election are absolutely necessary or there is no salvation. So again, this completely refutes the prescient view. God just looked down the corridor of history and he saw the ones who would be good enough. He saw the ones who would be smart enough. He saw the ones, you know, who would hear preachers that were persuasive enough. And he made his choice based on that. No, not at all. Again, in John 6, 35 to 40, Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. A lot of people think, for example, that John 3.16 is a problem for those who believe in the doctrines of grace. No, it, it, it says, uh, whosoever will. Absolutely right. Whoever believes. But who's going to believe? The elect. Jesus says it here. Listen to him again. He says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Amen. I believe in the doctrines of grace and I believe that wholeheartedly. Whoever comes to Jesus will not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I believe in that. Whoever comes to Christ, whoever believes in Christ, whoever repents of their sins will be saved. You get no argument from me whatsoever. However, I also know that all men are born in sin, shaped in iniquity, and that they're dead in their sins. And unless a supernatural act of God occurs first, they cannot believe, they cannot have faith, they cannot repent of their sin. They're incapable. So do I believe the whosoever's? Yes. But it's predicated upon predestination and election. Otherwise, there are some people who are smarter than others, more righteous than others, more godly than others, and are somehow able to figure this thing out unlike other people. And they are to be praised for their salvation, not God. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. By the way, you want an eternal security passage? There it is right there. 
but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. There's whoever's all over that passage of Scripture. And there's election and predestination all over that passage of Scripture. There is no contradiction between the two. Whoever believes will be saved. But you cannot believe. You cannot believe in and of yourself apart from the grace of God making you alive unto Christ. John 15. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We can just stop right there. Okay? And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whoever... So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. By the way, this flies in the face of those who say, Oh no, when you believe in the doctrines of grace, you know that whole once saved, always saved, and people can live any way they want to. No. Part of election and predestination is that you will bear fruit in keeping with your salvation. If you're not bearing fruit, that's evidence that you're not elect. Or at least you're not saved. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Being born again is not a work of man. Being born again is not a work of the flesh. And being born again, by the way, precedes our faith. It's not a byproduct of our faith. Here's what modern American evangelicalism has said. You need to walk this aisle and pray this prayer. And if you walk this aisle and pray this prayer, then you will be born again. In other words, you will born yourself again. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches you have to be born again in order to come to faith and repentance. And being born again is not something you do. It is a supernatural act of God. Your hands are not on it. That's why in John 3, Jesus compares it to the wind that blows wherever it wills. John 17, 1 and 2. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. To whom does Jesus give eternal life? All that the Father has given him. Here's the other beauty. Salvation is not just about the love that the Father has for the elect. But the elect are, in fact, a love gift from the Father to the Son. Second Timothy 1, 8 and 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the age began. And here again in John 17, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. 
For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. In other words, there are those means again. He gave them the word, because God uses that to save and call his elect. They have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. Jesus is praying to his Father, thanking his Father for the ones that have been given to him. Jesus is not saying, oh, Father, I just hope, I just hope that there's more. I just hope that there's more. No. He knows who he came for. Not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them, and I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Finally, Romans 8. We're so familiar with this. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew. Notice that the text does not say. For those who he foreknew would choose him. Those whom he foreknew. Not those whose actions he foreknew. Not those whose faith he foreknew. But those individuals whom he foreknew or whom he foreloved. Those whom he foreknew he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Cannot separate salvation from predestination and election. Defense of the doctrine. Let me share this with you. This is from Lorraine Bettner in his book, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination. Listen to this. Now, if future events are foreknown to God, they cannot by any possibility take a turn contrary to his knowledge. Follow this a line at a time. If future events are foreknown to God, then they can't take a turn contrary to what God knows. If things take a turn contrary to what God knows, then God didn't know. Okay? If the course of future events is foreknown... History will follow that course as definitely as a locomotive follows the rails from New York to Chicago. The Arminian doctrine in rejecting foreordination rejects the theistic basic for foreknowledge. Common sense tells us that no one can, or that, that uh, no event can be foreknown unless by some means, either physical or mental, it has been predetermined. You can't foreknow it unless it's been predetermined. If it's unfolding and there are multiple possibilities, you can't foreknow the outcome. You can only foreknow the outcome if the outcome has been predetermined. Okay? That's the only way. If the outcome hasn't been predetermined, you do not have foreknowledge. 
Our choice as to what determines the certainty of future events narrows down to two alternatives. Bettner says there's only two possibilities. The foreordination of the wise and merciful Heavenly Father or the working of blind physical fate. That's it. Here's my problem with the prescient view. God doesn't determine the future. He can merely see into it. And as he sees into it, things work themselves out according to what? Fate. Blind physical fate. It's either fate or the foreordination of our loving Heavenly Father. In which do we believe? If it's the former, and God just looks and watches things sort of work themselves out, and then makes his decisions based upon what he sees, how on earth do we argue against the evolutionists? Because that's a form of moral and ethical evolution, is it not? just sort of works itself out. And God makes a decision based upon the outcome so that he ends up on the winning team. That didn't work, folks. That didn't work. There is predestination and foreordination. What about the application of the doctrine? What do we do with this? Number one, turn your adoration toward God as you celebrate His grace and not your ability. That's the first application of this doctrine. The beauty of the doctrines of grace is that it gives us cause to praise God and not man. If we believe that our salvation is merely a byproduct of God having seen something in us that pleased Him, then we have a reason to boast. God saw something in me. God saw that I was going to choose Him. And He said, good job, Votie. You softened your heart more than other people. You were smarter than other people. You figured out the gospel. And because you did, I'm going to apply the blood of Jesus to your life. And you will come to heaven. And you and I will share glory together. Jesus paid a lot. Some to him I owe. Sin had left the crimson stain. We washed it white as snow. No. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left the crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. The only thing I brought to the party was the sin that needed to be forgiven. Secondly, 
share the gospel with confidence, knowing that God has guaranteed the salvation of his elect and success does not depend on us. Amen? This is freedom, folks. People are going to be saved. We know it. Why? Because of the predetermined, pre-destinating work of God. The foreknowledge of God. The foreordination of God. The election of God. God's got a people out there. And when we preach the gospel, the gospel is what God uses to call his elect to himself. So we go when we preach, and we preach with confidence, knowing that the Spirit of God will do his work. Now here's what's interesting. Um, Some will argue that believing in the doctrine of predestination will kill evangelism. Because why should we evangelize? Because we already know what's going to happen. Because God has already made this determination. So why should you go evangelize? Let me ask you this. If you take the prescient view, people are chosen or elected based on what? That God already saw in the future that they were going to choose him. Which means you end up at the same place just for a different reason. So we could ask the same question. Why preach the gospel if you hold to the prescient view if God has already seen something in that person? Do you see what I'm saying? What's the difference there? The only difference there is where the glory belongs and what the scriptures teach. Because in the prescient view, we believe that men are saved. And they're foreknown and predestined and called and justified and sanctified and glorified because of what God looked down the corridors of time and already saw. How is that not an issue for our motivation for preaching the gospel? And the idea that God, from the foundation of the earth has elected and predestined the people for himself to the praise of his glory. As far as motivation for the gospel, do you see the point? Don't fall for the why we should share the gospel lie. Another way we need to apply this doctrine, avoid introspective navel-gazing as a means of discovering whether or not you are elect. Just repent and believe the gospel. All this pining over whether or not God has chosen you. What is that? Let that go. God has not called you to determine whether or not, before the foundation of the earth, He has decreed your salvation. You don't get to see that. Deal with what you know. What do you know? You know that whoever believes shall be saved. You know that whoever comes to repentance and faith will be saved. So what do you do? Repent. Believe. Cry out to God. Beg Him to wash you with the blood of His beloved Son and save you from your sin. That's what you do. Forget the what ifs. That does nothing for me. That ties me up in knots. 
It accomplishes absolutely nothing. Except taking my eyes off of responding to the gospel. Don't do that. Also, and related to it, avoid spending more time worrying about whether or not your children are elect than you do sharing the gospel with them. You got parents who pine over, what if one of my babies is not elect? What if, what if God hasn't chosen one of them? Well, what if God hasn't? 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 I know nothing of that. Here's what I know. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation to all those who believe. Therefore, all I know is I'm sharing the gospel regularly, continuously with all of my children because that's the means that God uses to call forth his elect. That's what I'm doing. It is of absolutely no benefit for me to twiddle my thumbs and worry about whether or not my children are elect. That is of absolutely no benefit. And that is not what I'm called to. Not at all. Because here's what I'm seeing. We read about these unreached people groups who don't have the Bible in their language, who don't have a single church or a single Christian in their land. And then here I am, a Christian, with more Bibles in my house than I can shake a stick at, know the gospel, been saved by the gospel, committed to sharing the gospel in my home, and God sent that baby to my house. How about I work with that? Amen? God's called me unto himself, given me the gospel, a passion for this young person, and every day to preach to him. How about I work with that? Instead of twiddling my thumbs and pining over whether or not... And again, that's not the question. Don't ask the question that you can't answer. Because you, you can't answer that question. What if this person is elect? What if this person is not elect? And we all do it. We all do it. I can't answer that question. You can't answer that question. So what do we deal with? We deal with what we know. Preach the gospel. That's what we know. These people have an opportunity to hear the gospel. That's what we know. That's what we work with. That's what we spend our time on. That's what we spend our energy on. Not asking questions that I can't answer. I can't figure that out. I don't know that. I'm too busy working out my own salvation with fear and trembling. Amen? Working on my own assurance of my salvation. Don't tie yourself up in knots about that. And certainly, don't let it hinder you from preaching the gospel. From sharing the gospel. Again and again and again and again and again. We're not in the department of seeing. That's not the question. The question is not, is this person one of the elect? The question is, is this person hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, resting on the gospel, bearing fruit as a result? Those are the questions. And those are the only questions. 
I mean, the fact of the matter is, it could be a long time from now. Your children can be long gone out of your house, and you dead and gone before they come to faith in Christ. So what do you gain by pining over whether or not they're elect? Nothing. Nothing. Just give them the gospel. Trust God to save them. This is something that adoptive parents often struggle with too. You know? These children coming into our home from other places and, you know, other families and this and that and the other. And what if we just, what if we go out and we grab one who's not elect? Really? How about we just go, our home is a gospel outpost. God's going to send us kids that he believes need to be raised in a gospel outpost. I'm liking those odds. Amen? I know that all of this is easier said than done. I get that. It is much easier to say we need to turn our praise and adoration toward God and not ourselves. It is. It's much easier to say that than it is to do. Because the fact of the matter is, all of us, when we share our testimony, it's I, 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 I. I grew up here, I used to live like this, then I trusted Christ, then I got saved, then I started living like this, then I, 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 I. That's the way most people share their testimony. You'd never know that Jesus saved them. Again, it's easier said than done. It's easier said than done, you know. Share the gospel with people. Knowing that God has his elect out there and the gospel is a means that will call them forth. Do it. That's easier said than done because we don't like the whole rejection thing. We're scared we're going to say the wrong thing. We're scared we're going to mess it up. We're scared we're going to lose friends. We're scared, we're scared, we're scared. I realize that. It's easier said than done. Now, I realize that avoiding this sort of introspective navel-gazing is easier said than done. Because every one of us does things from time to time and thinks things from time to time that make us go, no way I'm saved. If you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. Every last one of us, we have those days where we just go, I, you know what, I, I may just be deceived. This stuff that I'm wrestling with, stuff that's gone, that comes back, Stuff that you even say, I'm, praise God he delivered me from ABC and XYZ. And then all of a sudden one day, it could be years later, and there it is. Trust me, I realize this is easier said than done. And the last one, of course, is easier said than done. Which parent among us who believes in the doctrine of election and predestination can say that we've never had that moment where we've questioned. That little baby's there and, you know, kind of cooing and eyeing and everything else. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it just comes across your mind. What if this little precious thing is not one of the elect? 
That happens to us, folks. I realize that happens to us. It happens to us all. That's why we have sermons. Amen? Because you need to be reminded of this stuff. And I need to be reminded more. Which is why I get to live with this for weeks before I share it with you for whatever time we have. Thank you very much. So whatever you're thinking right now about how much you needed this, just remember, I've been living with it ten times longer than you've had to live with it here today. Amen? That's why we have sermons. Because we need to be reminded again and again and again and again and again of all of these things. Because they're all much easier said than done. Nevertheless, by the power of the gospel and according to his grace, we're going to get there. For his praise. His glory and His namesake. Does everybody at this church understand all of this? Uh, no. I understand it better today than I did two weeks ago. Does everybody at this church fully agree with all of this? Uh, no. No. Is everybody at this church finished wrestling with all of this? Uh, no. No. Absolutely not. But this is the doctrine upon which we stand. This is who we are. And here's what unites us. R remember this as we go. Here's what unites us. Even folks here at this church... Some members of this church who are not here, who are not here, have said, you know what, we're not there, but that's the doctrine of this church, so I'm going to keep searching, I'm going to keep learning, I'm going to keep reading, and I'm going to keep walking with my brothers and sisters, praying that God will reveal His truth to me. What more can we ask for? So we don't have classes of members here, those who are special, full-fledged members because they embrace the doctrines of grace and others who are not quite there yet, who have to be endured with patience until they finally walk into the second blessing. Uh, help you if you believe that, okay? Trust me. Trust me. We know that there are people who wrestle with this and who struggle with this. But here's the good news. Nobody has to wrestle or struggle with, I wonder where the church stands on this. Amen? Because I don't know about you, but I'm a whole lot better when I can say, you know what, we're in a little bit of disagreement on this little thing over here, and that's okay, because we know where it is and we can work through it. I'm much better there than I am, you know, I really hope we're unified, but I have no idea whatsoever what the stance is on fill in the blank. 
Boy, it's hard to have unity there. So we don't present this in order to say with arrogance, this is us. Take it all the way or leave it. But we communicate it with confidence saying, this is where we stand. And we want you to know with clarity and assurance that this is what you're going to get from us. And I hope today, because there may be some of you who've been here for a while and you know that this is where we are, but I hope today that you understand that it's not only where we are, but there's a reason that it's where we are. Because we believe that it's what the Scriptures teach rather clearly. I hope you also understand this relationship between our confession of faith that unites us and our belief that the Scriptures are completely sufficient. And they are our standard for faith and practice. Because some will ask questions, some will ask questions like this, and we deal with this in our 1689 class. You know, well, why have a confession at all? No creed but Christ. Really? What do you mean when you say Christ? Well, we just believe the Bible. Really? Apocrypha in or out? See, it's real easy to be flippant. You know, and to knock the idea of having a confession. We just need to center around Jesus. Well, he has to be defined. We just need to center around the Bible. Well, that has to be defined. So our confession of faith doesn't supersede the scriptures. It just basically boils down our stream of thought and tradition and position on the key scriptural doctrines so that you know what this church means when it says we believe the Bible and we believe in Jesus. Now, I hope you've seen that today. I hope you've also seen that the reason we love the London Baptist Confession of 1689, which is not the confession of faith for most Southern Baptist churches at all, is because of how thorough and how biblical. I, I hope you see that as we read the confession, we came back and we read all those passages, and you, if you looked carefully, you saw where every phrase in the confession came from as we examined those passages of Scripture. That's why it's our confession. Let's pray.